Okay, so we are carrying on in our study through Psalm 119. Just an incredible psalm. Um, many commentators and scholars have uh, argued that it's the greatest of all the psalms. I mean, certainly in terms of uh, content, uh, the subject is all God's word. Uh, and what greater theme or subject that we can study. Of course, it is the longest psalm as well, which gives it its own kind of special place in God's word. But as we've been saying, as we've been going through this journey, Psalm 119 is itself a journey. It's almost like a, a guide or a handbook for the walk of faith. This is my contention as we've been going through. You see a, a definite pattern starting to unfold um, right from the beginning block of eight verses. And each, the whole psalm is divided into these blocks of eight verses. We just see an incredible progression, a growing in grace and in knowledge as we go through. So we're just going to continue this morning, but let's, as we always do, just bow our hearts and ask God's blessing on this study together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, please, this morning, just teach us more of you and give us, Lord, just a fresh understanding of, Lord, what it is to be yours, to be called, to be chosen by you. Uh, Lord, we want to... Live our lives for your glory. We want to be set apart from the things of this world. But we recognize, Lord, that on our own, we cannot do that. We need your grace. We need you to do something in us, Lord, that's supernatural. And so, Father, we just give you this time. Speak to us clearly, we pray, through your word. Give us understanding. We ask that we may learn your statutes. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so each section... Is begins with a, a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So each block of eight verses will begin with the same Hebrew letter, and then the next block with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and so on. So typically, it became a, 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 an aid for Hebrew children to learn their alphabet. Each of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet also have a meaning. So the word or the letter this time is the Hebrew letter Ayan, and it simply means uh, I, but also conveys the idea of a spring or a fountain as a means of expression. So you kind of see in that there's almost this idea of, of source connected to it, the source or the root of things. I've kind of entitled this this uh, section, these eight verses uh, from 121 through to 128, as Lessons in Trust. Because you're going to see the, the psalmist learning more about trusting God and so, you know, we're going to continue that ascent as we've been looking out of the afflictions of life. That's been a very much a theme of the recent sections. Toward a life of joy, peace, and liberty. You know, and that's what God would have for us, even in the midst of storms. Jesus said, John 10, that he came to give us life in abundance. And that's the way we should be living our lives. It should be an abundant, joyful life. But that doesn't mean we're always happy. Sometimes we mistake joyfulness for happiness. Happiness is a very fickle, transient thing. Happiness depends upon the moment, the circumstance. Joy pervades all of those things. Joy is, joy is much deeper. And that's what God would have us understand and to enjoy the blessings and the fellowship that we can have, even in trials and in difficulties. Now, once again, those afflictions that we've been looking at come from not just external sources, but also internal as well. They come from our own self-seeking, sinful human nature. You know, Psalms is a book that's full of these references to the proud, 16 times. The wicked are mentioned 19 times in the book of Psalms. The ungodly are mentioned just 8 times, but they're there continually. Uh, My enemies are mentioned 80 times in the book of Psalms. Enemy is mentioned 25 times. You know, there's a lot of this theme of those that would seek our demise. But we need also to keep in our, our remembrance the fact that it's often our flesh life 
that is in view in these passages. You know, when we speak of the proud, well, there is none more proud than my own fleshly nature. When we speak of enemies and wicked and so on, once again, the real enemy is not a, a Philistine that we may encounter. You know, the real enemy is often far more subtle, and it's often that which is within. And sometimes people get a little un, un, uneasy when you, you see these references in Psalms about destroying the wicked and so on, and God bringing judgment upon them, and the psalmists, you know, David particularly, crying out that God will bring judgment on them. But when you realize that a lot of that is referring to our flesh life, as well as external things, but, you know, that's what we are crying. That we want God to destroy the the power in the sense of our fleshly appetites in our lives and give us a hunger and a thirsting after righteousness. So this section we're going to see a, a cry to be delivered from oppression to start with. You know, oppression has got as much to do with our perception as any actual physical harm that can come to us. You know, hence the, the psalmist is going to appeal for salvation. That his life would be permeated by God's word verse 123, and then for mercy that he would learn God's statutes, verse 124. For understanding that he would know by practical experience that which God has testified of concerning this way we're to live. And then verse 126, boldly he's going to make this declaration, it is time for the Lord to work. You know, he's had enough of the oppression of the world, the flesh and the devil in his life, and now it's long overdue time for change. And he's come to this place of realizing that it must begin with his own heart, with his own affections. As we read in 1 John 2.15, a verse familiar to us, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, makes this comment. He says, This commences a new division of the psalm indicated by the Hebrew letter Ayan. A letter which cannot be well represented in the English alphabet, as there is in fact no letter in our language exactly corresponding with it. It would be best represented probably by what are called breathings in the Greek. I just thought it was just an interesting observation. There isn't a direct correlation in our alphabet to this letter, but that idea that it's got the idea of kind of breath about this. And I think that coupled with the idea as noted in the, what I said a moment ago, looking at the actual, the Hebrew meaning of the letter, it's kind of got that idea of a spring or a fountain. And it suggests returning to the source, getting back to the way it should be. Seeing clearly, again, that idea of I is encaptured in the, the, the name of the, the letter itself. Almost that kind of breathing deeply. You know, if, you, if you're playing a game and you've got to get to a certain point in that game and you get there, there's almost that kind of breath, that sighing of kind of, you know, uh, glad you've got to that point. And there's almost that idea conveyed here. Of course, in Eden, everything was wonderful until the heart was deceived, and that's when oppression began. And notice really where the first oppression came from. As God is walking through the garden, Adam hears God walking. Adam and Eve hid themselves because they recognized they were naked and they were ashamed. The first oppression experienced by mankind ultimately was that oppression that came from within, that acknowledgement of our own sin. And what a great oppression that can be in our lives. If you're in a place of sin, if you're in a place where you are allowing things in your life that are not of God, your own heart condemns you. Your conscience convicts you. But in contrast, grace restores our soul. It's that grace that remembers our iniquities no more. So, 
if you will, kind of open your eyes, take a breath, and look at what God has done. Yeah, it will change us. And let's jump in then to the verse 121. And we go through. So, I have done judgment and justice. Leave me not to mine oppressors, the psalmist says. I just want to read you a couple of quotes of of Spurgeon. Uh, He says this, This was a great thing for an eastern ruler to say at any time. For these despots mostly cared more for gain than justice. Some of them altogether neglected their duty and would not even do judgment at all, preferring their pleasures to their duties. And many more of them sold their judgments to the highest bidders by taking bribes, or regarding the persons of men. Some rulers gave neither judgment nor justice, others gave judgment without justice. But David gave judgment and justice, and saw that his sentences were carried out. He goes on and says, If I will not oppress others, I may hopefully pray that others may not oppress me. Again, as I said, there wasn't any oppression before the fall. you know, And there shouldn't be any place for it in the life of one that's born again. Because Jesus has given us victory over sin, over the world, over the flesh, over the devil. You know, oppression really comes because we are not in that right place with God. Now, yes, the world can oppress us. But if we're in the right place with God, just as Paul said, you know, he's learning all situations to count it as joy. You know, and that's what we should be able to do, whatever the circumstance. It doesn't mean we enjoy it. But we count it as joy. We see it as something that is for our good, something that God allows. You know, we need to recognize that God will never let anything in our lives that is not father-filtered. You know, oppression very much has to do with our standing before God. And the, the psalmist here says, I, I've done judgment and justice. He says, leave me not to mine oppressors. Now, of course, externally that's true, and we pray that, but also... Leave us not to ourselves. You know, the the horror of our own lives. I don't know whether you've ever had a glimpse whether God has let you see. Maybe you remember before you were a Christian what you were really like. And sometimes even as a Christian, I think the Lord sometimes allows you moments just to get a glimpse of what you would be like without him. I think there are times we, we get comfortable almost in our spiritual walk and we think that everything's okay and suddenly you realize that so much of the blessing that surrounds your life is his grace. And we almost get to that place of thinking, well, look what I've done. Yeah, numerous kings of Israel did that. God strengthened them, established them. And then they went, well, look at, look at my kingdom, isn't it good? And of course then they have this humiliating downsliding and falling and so on and eventually crying out to God again. Oh, God is gracious with us. But I think there are times that he allows us just to see a glimpse of what we would really be like without him. Everything that's good in our lives is of God. We carry on the verse 122. He says, Be surety for thy servant for good. Let not the proud oppress me. Now this is quite a, a bold claim, or bold request from the psalmist here. He, you know, he's saying, Be surety for thy servant. We need to just understand a little bit of what that really means. Because we read this, it's kind of easy to skip over it. But Proverbs 11.15 tells us that we shouldn't be surety for a stranger. What does that mean? An old phrase maybe. But don't lend money or pledge support or vouch for someone that you don't know. It's quite simple. Don't stand up and speak well on behalf of somebody if you don't know them. Because otherwise you might well be humiliated. You'll be shown to be a, a poor judge of character. If they fail to repay you or renege on a promise that they've made, 
and so on. And so consider the context here. The, the, the psalmist to make this really quite audacious request to God is, well, it's something indeed, because he's asking God to speak well of him. He's saying, God, I want you to stand up and say that you are for me. I want you to vouch for me, God. Vouch for my character and my integrity before those who would seek my downfall. Of course, Hebrews 6.18 tells us that God cannot lie. So God cannot do that unless it were true. So the only way we can reconcile this is to conclude that the psalmist has come to that place of understanding that God has already done something within him that far outweighs any of his own natural abilities. You know, and all the way through this psalm, we've been seeing that he's been pleading with God to change him from within. And now it's like he's laying claim to that hope, that his prayers have been fully answered. You know, and that God actually now can stand up for him. God can speak well on his behalf. You see, if God has created a right spirit within us, as David in Psalm 51 prayed he would do, if he's placed within us a new life that cannot sin, First John 5.18 and other verses will tell us that. Indeed, he can legitimately be surety for us. God can publicly stand, as it were, for us and declare us good. You know, there's going to be a day before the throne that we're going to be glad that Jesus knows our names. And Jesus will stand and be surety for us before the Father. He will say, yes, I know Barry. I can vouch for Barry. And he'll show that my name is written in the book of life. What a privilege. What, what a request to ask of God in the first place. You know, in my, uh, in my role at work, uh, very often I've had members of my team come to me and say that they, they need a particular document witnessed or whatever for, you know, mortgage applications or rent or all, all sorts of other things that have, have happened. And they've come to me and said, would you mind being a reference for me? Well, that's, that's the same type of thing. And we're saying, God, I want you to be a reference for me. Well, ultimately, we're asking Jesus to be our reference, aren't we? Not not just before this world, but before God himself. 2 Chronicles 69 tells us, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. You see, God wants to. God wants to find people that he can say, This is my man. This is my woman. This is the person that I have chosen, I have called. Spurgeon again says this, as my master undertakes, um, thy, or undertake thy servant's cause and represent me before the faces of haughty men till they see what an august ally I have in the Lord my God. Let not the proud oppress me. Thine interposition will answer the purpose of my rescue when the proud see that thou art my advocate. They will hide their heads. You know, it's a little bit, you know, you just think of the situation with, with Balaam and the donkey. You know, Balaam's hitting his donkey and so on because his donkey's, you know, going off the path and crushes his leg and all these kind of things. And suddenly Balaam's eyes are open and he sees who's on the donkey's side. And he's just totally blown away. You know, well, think of the people in this world that may want to oppress us or persecute us or whatever when suddenly their eyes are open and they realize that God is on your side. Now, what a wonderful privilege that we have. Of course, we're told in Romans 8, 30-31, Moreover, whom he did predestinate them, he also called. And whom he called them, he also justified. And whom he justified them, he also glorified. What should we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? 
What a great privilege this really is for us. Again, what a good prayer for us to be praying. Lord, be surety for thy servant for good. Let not the proud oppress me. And once again, as I said, very often that whole idea of oppression comes from our own perception. Once you realize that God is for you, actually the whole power of oppression is broken. Verse 123, mine eyes fail for thy salvation and for the word of thy righteousness. Virgin says there, he says, he looked to God alone. He looked eagerly. He looked long. He looked till his eyes ached. The mercy is that if our eyes fail, God does not fail, nor do his eyes fail. Eyes are tender things, and so are our faith, hope, and expectancy. The Lord will not try them above what they are able to bear. You know, I wonder if we can say this morning this is true for us. You know, have we come to that place of saying, my eyes fail for thy salvation? You know, have you got to that place where your eyes have been so tired because you're reading God's word late into the evening and you just, eyes are failing, but you're seeking God, you want him. Or sometimes even in tears as God is moving your heart over one particular issue or another. And for the word of thy righteousness. Notice what he's looking for and wanting here. It's not just for salvation, but it's for salvation and for God's word because you recognize that all of this is wrapped up in God's word. Peter was sharing this morning how he saw people and looked at people who were strong spiritually, who God was blessing and desired to be like that. Uh, Do you desire to be like godly people? I mean, uh, there are people we stumble across from time to time and we just see God working in their lives. And isn't that that kind of, I'd love to be like that? You know, everybody has some sort of role model in life one way or another. Well, those are the kind of role models we should have. People that are godly. People that make us want to strive to serve God and to live our lives for him. Verse 124, we carry on. Deal with thy servant according unto thy mercy and teach me thy statutes. Well, what a great prayer again, because that's how we need God to deal with us. We don't want God to deal with us according to his justice. Well, certainly not. We want him to deal with us according to his mercy. His mercy endures forever. We've already looked in that in the previous session. But Lord, deal with me according to your mercy because you are merciful. And God's mercy is the greatest mercy of all. There's nothing to compare with it because it's the overflowing of a heart that was so full of love that was willing to send his own son to the cross and save us. That's God's mercy. Mercy has triumphed over judgment. That's the mercy we're pleading for. And again, that cry, teach me thy statutes. I mean, so many times we've seen that idea presented in this psalm. You just continue need to be learning. But not just learning bits of information and knowledge, it's learning God's word. That That's what will change us. That's what will help us as we walk this walk. That's what will help us to walk by faith. So Spurgeon said this, if I'm a servant of God, I could bring my services before him only upon the ground of his mercy. And it's true, you know, God has called us. He's given us his privilege, his position. He's given us his Holy Spirit. All of that is because of his mercy. The fact that we can go to him at all and, and make any request is a result of his mercy. The title of a servant covers a plea. A master should clear the character of his servant if he be falsely accused and rescue him from those who would oppress him. And moreover, the master should show mercy to a servant. 
even if he dealt severely with a stranger. You see, there's another aspect of this, because he says, deal with thy servant. It's not deal with me, according to thy mercy, although that's a great prayer to pray, but deal with thy servant. He's almost putting an onus on God, he's saying, God, I am yours. I belong to you, I am your servant. And because I am your servant, you have a responsibility to me. And of course we know from scripture that we have been bought at a price, we've been purchased, we've been redeemed. And of course God undertakes to give us all that we need, to give us exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. Verse 125, I am thy servant, once again, just making that plea, give me understanding that I may know thy testimonies. The psalmist has already prayed for wisdom and knowledge a number of times, and here he continues, in a sense, that request for spiritual understanding. And actually find throughout this psalm that five times, and just as an aside, five is the number of grace in Scripture, always seems to be representative of, of grace when it's used. Uh, five times we see this request. Uh, it should be kind of be a point to note for us, because... If the psalmist needed God's grace, if the psalmist needed God's uh, God to give him understanding, how much more do we? Back in verse 34, he said, Give me understanding and I shall keep thy law. Verse 73, he said, Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. Here he's saying, Give me understanding that I may know thy testimonies. You know, if he grants understanding, we shall keep his law, learn his commandments and know his testimonies. The final two, in verse 144, he says again, give me understanding and I shall live. You know, having got to that place of pleading with God to give us understanding that we would know and understand and perceive his law, his word. The next thing is give me understanding because, Lord, if you give me understanding in your word, then I will live. And finally, in verse 169, he says, give me understanding according to thy word. He's already got a measure of understanding by that point. And there's an appeal there for God to honour his promises. We'll come back and talk more about that in just a moment. But again, highlights that work of sanctification. It is entirely of God. It's not of us to do this work of sanctification. It's by grace. It's the work of, of the Lord through faith. And that's the only way we can appropriate it. In verse 94 he prayed, I am thine, save me. In this verse, it's effectively the same prayer that he's praying because he's saying it's because we are his servants, because we've been bought at that price, as we said a moment ago, because we're no longer our own, that we can cry out to our master to give us that which we need to serve him as he deserves. In verse 26, we carry on, it is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Now, Revelation 18, verse 5, we read there of a time yet to come when we find that the sins of the wicked will reach up to heaven. Nineteen times in the book of Psalms we hear the cry, How long? And it's always in connection to judgment on the wicked and deliverance for the righteous. And again, even in this verse, there's almost that implication that, you know, Lord, I've had enough now. It's time for thee, Lord, to work. We've come through this journey in our lives. We know what God's standard is. We know what God is asking for us. We've gone through that battle of the flesh, in a sense. We've recognized that it's only by keeping God's word, by meditating on God's word, by loving God's word, that we will overcome the flesh. And then we've got this problem that we've been going through with the proud, with the wicked, with the oppressors. And once again, the only way of overcoming that is through God's word, by reading God's word, by meditating on his statutes and his precepts, by allowing these things to 
not just get into our heads, but get into our hearts. And so now he says, it's time, Lord, you know, enough of this. Lord, I want there to be a change. It's time for thee to work. For they have made void thy law. You know, he's becoming more and more aware of not his own sin so much, but the sin around him. He's already been looking much at his own sin. And now he's seeing, as he's growing closer to God, as he's growing in grace, the iniquity that surrounds him. As we said before, that as believers grow, as we get closer to God, we sin less and repent more. We become more and more aware of the things that are around us, that are unholy, that are unclean, that are un... This is just not pleasing to God. I was looking for an un there to finish that sentence, but just things are not pleasing to God. You know, and you probably in your own life as a believer know that go back five years ago or even two years ago, there were things that you were doing then that you wouldn't do now. Things that weren't necessarily sinful, but they weren't helpful either. They weren't things that were moving you closer to God. They were things that were being a hindrance to your relationship and your walk with God. Maybe there was things that you once listened to, and at the time you thought, this is okay, and you were trying to justify that it was alright, and maybe it wasn't that bad. But you look back now and you think, I I don't want that. I don't want that in my life. You know, now, uh, at home, the only thing we tend to listen to is Christian radio. Worship, teaching. It's not because we don't like other things, but... It's godly, it's holy, it's helpful, it's encouraging, it strengthens you. You It's challenging enough to walk the walk that we've been called to without then allowing worldly influences to come in. I even find I'm watching the news less. People have commented before that, you know, if you watch the news You'll be misinformed. If you don't watch the news, you'll be uninformed. It's kind of a lose-lose, isn't it? And we know, we recognize that a lot of what we get fed by our, our media is what they would like us to know, not necessarily the truth. And there are places we can go to find out what is happening. Again, if you come to that place of starting to get irritated by those that have made God's law void, that don't value it, they don't care for it. Well, he carries on and says, Therefore... Building on what he's just said, verse 127, Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. And it's almost as if that prayer now is immediately answered, because he's praying that prayer, let's just go again, get the context. It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Therefore I love thy commandments above gold. It's almost as if he prays his prayer, and suddenly he's aware that God has answered him instantly. But of course, that is the way it is, because we have God's promises. And they are the assurance that God will act. They are the assurance that God will work. You know, and he says here that God's promises and effects are better than fine gold. Now, he's speaking of gold that is so pure that it won't oxidize. It won't tarnish or rust or be corrupted in any way. It's so pure. But he's saying that God's Promises, God's commandments are even better than that because they are incorruptible. His promises are true and faithful. They're of inestimable value. I was actually listening while I was uh, just cleaning and trying to repair our shower yesterday. I just had some teaching on. I was listening to Skip Isaac, who's the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque in America. 
And he was just talking about a time that he was in need financially. And so he was praying that God would help him and provide and so on. And the next morning, a check arrived. It was actually a tax rebate. And it was just, in fact, it was slightly more than the money that he needed. And so he just praised God. But then he's quite funny because he said, all of a sudden I was convicted. He said, because all he had in his hand was a piece of paper that had no intrinsic value whatsoever. What he had in his hand, in essence, was just a promise from the government that they were going to pay him. And he said, God spoke to him and reminded him of all the promises that we have in the word, that we have in our hand. You know, you look at a check and you count it as if it's already cashed in your head, don't you? And that's exactly what he Skipper done in this situation. But then suddenly realising that we've actually got something better than fine gold. We've got something better than any promise that a man could make. Because we've got God's promises. You know, how much more can we trust God's word than man's word? I've said this before, but there was a story of a lady, and again speaking to another Calvary pastor after a meeting, he'd been speaking about God and the way that God is faithful and, and so on. And after the meeting, the lady had come to the pastor and she seemed to be uh, just uncertain of some things. And the, the pastor became more and more frustrated as she was pouring out a heart and explaining all these problems and issues and so on. And given the fact that he'd just been teaching about so many of these issues, he turned to the lady and said, Lady, what do you do with the promises of God? And she replied, underline them in blue. And sadly... That's what a lot of people do. They kind of maybe know them. Maybe we underline them in our Bibles. But do we let them permeate our heart? Do we realize that God's promises are true? Therefore I love thy commandments, yea, above fine gold. You know, again, God's commandments to you just like something that we memorize or list. Or like the psalmist, do you love his commandments more than anything? the world can offer you. Verse 128, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts. She's growing. You know, notice these verses, the, the kind of the progression here. Verse 26, It is time for thee. And he goes on, verse 27, Therefore, verse 28, Therefore, this is this building. Verse 28, 128, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. I hate every false way. A man by the name of Barton Bouchier said this, he said, It is no compromising testimony to the integrity and value of the Lord's precepts with which the psalmist concludes. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. He says, every command, however hard, however, so every injunction, however distasteful, every precept, however severe, even cut off thy right hand, pluck out thy right eye, forget thine own people and thy father's house, and take up thy cross daily. Sell all that thou hast. Yea, Lord, even so, all thy precepts concerning all things are right. And he says, what a blessed truth to arrive at and find comfort in. Notice again what he says, therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. All is just a, a small little word, but doesn't it have impact here? That place of trust, just believing that whatever God has said, because it is God who has said it, I'm reminded of verse 68 once again, that he's good and does good. You know, it's a verse really here that challenges us to trust him because of the truth that's already been revealed about him. 
Remember, John Haley said this, he said, The being who loves the good with infinite intensity must hate evil with the same intensity. So far from any incompatibility between this love and this hatred, they are counterparts of each other, opposite poles of the same moral emotion. You see, as we're growing in grace, as we start to love the things of God more, so we love the things of the world less. You know, to the point, as he says, I hate every false way. William Cowper said this, I hate every false way. If Satan get a grip of thee by any one sin, is it not enough to carry thee to damnation? As the butcher carries the beast to the slaughter, sometimes bound by all four feet and sometimes by only one, so it is with Satan. Though thou be not a slave to all sin, if thou be a slave to one, the grip he has of thee by that one sinful affliction is sufficient to captivate thee. You know, and this is what the psalmist is saying, I hate every false way. You know, and there is that danger, of course, that there are things that we may hang on to. And now there's this challenge that as we are moving forward, as God's word is exposing things in our life, and we've already seen that God's word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and as it illuminates our way, as it shows us even within ourselves, things that have got to go, got to change, sometimes that's that temptation just to hold on to something. But now he says, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. You know, and, and notice also this, this isn't a case of, I understand everything now, because we don't. And I've got no doubt the psalmist didn't understand everything, but he's saying, you know what, Lord, I've come to that place of realizing that you are right about everything you've said. Whether I get it, whether I understand it, whether I emotionally feel it or not, is irrelevant. Our emotions can be really quite dangerous because they can stop us growing in that grace. So the next eight, we'll just go through them again, just not spending as much time on these, but I just want to highlight them. The Hebrew letter, pay, the word means mouth, but it's synonymous with, with speech. The Hebrew letter is even pictured a little bit like a, a mouth. It's, in the previous section, much has been said, of course, of God's words we've just been looking at, but the psalmist is going to continue to grow in his understanding of how important God's word is for his spiritual health and well-being, and hopefully we are starting to do the same. It's kind of the corn has already been turned. You know, the pieces of the jigsaw are starting to fall into place. Even last week we were talking about that need to have time aside. If we are to walk by faith, we can't just expect it to happen. We've got to put time aside. We need to get alone with God. We need to get in a right place with God's word. We need to be willing to put things aside that maybe once we held on to. You know, we start to make a list of all of these things that the, the, the Lord through his word is revealing. You know, the key is always God's word. And so we carry on, verse 129. Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore does my soul keep them. Version says, Thy commands are wonderful, full of wonderful revelations, commands and promises, wonderful in their nature, as being free from all error, and bearing within themselves overwhelming self-evidence of their truth, wonderful in their effects as instructing, elevating, strengthening, and comforting the soul. Jesus, the eternal word, is called wonderful. And all the uttered words of God are wonderful in their degree. Those who know them best wonder at them most. I like that. You know, as we start to grow, as we start to learn more about God, we can't help but fall more and more in love with his word. We can't help but see things and be excited by just little things in God's word. 
I remember many years ago, just going through the Bible in a year, and I got to January, and the first of January, I started in Genesis, and I remember just being flawed spiritually as I read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I just stopped. And I was going to spend my 15 minutes or so just reading that, that section for the day. And I just couldn't get my head off of that verse. Because the question immediately came to my mind, why? Why did God make the heavens and the earth? And I realized it was because he wanted a relationship with me. He wanted a relationship with you. That was the reason. God did all of that so that he could have a relationship with his creation. I mean, you think of the heavens. You look up in the sky at night and you see the stars. You look around the earth. David Attenborough is just about to start a new series. I think it's this evening it starts looking at this planet earth and just the wonders and the complexities. What amazes me about that man is he talks about these things and yet attributes it to chance. That aside, if you turn the volume down and watch the pictures, it'll be a great uh, thing, I'm sure. As you just just become overwhelmed by this world in which we live. And yet, God has made all of that so that we can have a relationship with him. Again, those that know him best wonder at them most. Verse 130. The entrance of thy words gives light. I mean, that that could be a, a, a topic for a sermon all on its own. That God's word illuminates, it exposes things, it reveals things, it clarifies, it gives understanding unto the simple. You know, and I, I love this because he's asked for understanding and now he's stating that that understanding is not reserved for the brightest and the best, it's not for people that go to Oxford or Cambridge only. This is accessible to all. You don't need a degree in theology to understand God's word. In fact, actually in many cases it's proven to be a hindrance for those that have got them. Spurgeon again says, The entrance of thy word gives light. No sooner do they gain admission to the soul than they enlighten it. What light may be expected from their prolonged indwelling? Their very entrance floods the mind with instruction, for they are so full, so clear. But on the other hand, there must be such an entrance or there will be no illumination. Uh, that's an important point because what he's saying is, you know, the entrance of God's word gives light. By reading God's words, by meditating on his words, it will bring light. But unless we put ourselves in a position to allow that in the first place, well, there won't be any light. You know, ever gone through a moment or a stage in life where you just feel a bit like you're in a fog? Nothing makes sense, nothing's clear? Well, then turn to scripture. Because the entrance of God's word gives light. And I love a Spurgeon says there, you know, if, if the entrance gives light, how much more if they go into us and they indwell in us? Verse 131, he says, I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for thy commandments. You know, have you ever, I, I speak you know, from what I've seen, but I'm talking about exercise here, um, not particularly familiar with it myself, but I understand, I've seen people that, that do exercise and they get to the end of their race or whatever and they need a drink. Uh, you see it, don't you? When you be, people do marathons and there's people at the side of the road and they've got cups of water and things. And people just, they, they, they have to be refreshed. It's kind of the idea. He's just saying, I longed for thy commandments. Yeah, open my mouth and panted. There's such a yearning, such a desire. As we go through this life, there's so many things that will drain us and, and, and make us weary. He's saying, I open my mouth and panted. For I longed for thy commandments. Do you do you get to the stage where you come home from work or you get to the end of your day in one way or another and you think, 
I just need the Bible. I just need scripture. I just need to read something. You know, there's times that I've just opened scripture and I've just read a verse. Just one verse. Just give me a verse, Lord. Just something. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be a, a line from the deepest parts of Leviticus, but it's still God's word. Verse 132. Look thou upon me and be merciful unto me, as thou used to do unto those that love thy name. Now, it's interesting because appeals made here to God's, of course, unchanging and impartial nature. He's dealt well with servants in the past and so will afford the same blessings to his servants today. And we're not told specifically of who the psalmist is referring again. I've said many times already, but I believe David is the author of this psalm. And it may well be that David was referring to Samuel or even back to Moses. He says, look thou upon me and be merciful unto me as thou used to do unto those that love thy name. And he's thinking of those that he knew that have loved God's name. Samuel definitely would have been a candidate. Moses, no doubt, a candidate. And many others through history. But you know, for us, the psalmist himself is a candidate. Because as we read this, God clearly had been merciful to this psalmist. We know God was merciful for David. So we can pray, Lord, look upon us. Be merciful to us. Because you've done it in the past to others. And we can be sure that he will. Verse 133. Order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Uh, He's already spoken of hating every false way at the end of the previous section. And now he says, I don't want any iniquity to have dominion over me. But notice what he says first. Order my steps in thy word. We we saw in the previous uh, section, verse 105, Two sections back as it is. Um, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So our way is illuminated, but now he's saying, Lord, I, even that, I want you to order my steps in your word. It's kind of that recognition that even just one step in the wrong way, in the wrong direction, could cause real problems for me. Satan would love to, to trip us up. Satan has laid these traps for us. Uh, we read, didn't we, back in... Uh, verse 85, the proud have digged pits for me which are not after thy law. You know, there are pit holes, there are problems that we're going to experience. And so the, the psalmist is kind of effectively saying, now look, I don't even take a single step unless you order it. Because this life of faith, this life of walking in the grace that he's given is so precious. But also, in one sense, it's so fragile. Because so easily we can move ourselves from that wonderful place of fellowship with God to a place where we allow things of the world to come in. And he says, oh, not allow any iniquity. The word iniquity in, um, well, in fact, throughout the Old Testament, we have three words typically used. We have iniquity, sin, and transgression. Those three things. Sin is an old archery term, I'm sure you're, you're familiar, we've talked about it many times, but it just means missing the mark. That's what sin is, it's what we all are guilty of, we have missed God's mark, we've missed God's standard. That's what sin is. Transgression is crossing the line. It, it implies willful intent. Interestingly, in Leviticus, when we have the offerings given in the first five and a bit chapters there, various um, offerings to be made for people that sin unintentionally and for people that sin intentionally. Transgression is just, transgression is crossing a line. And then we've got iniquity. Iniquity is our own twisted human nature. It's the problem of sin that we inherited from, from Adam. And so he says, don't let that 
twisted sinful nature have dominion over me. So Lord, order my steps in thy word. It's not just, Lord, just, just tell me which way to go and I'm going to go. It's, Lord, order my steps in thy word. I'm going to go to God's word and I'm going to know which steps to take. You know, if our steps are ordered, we're not going to even venture down the path where iniquity resides. In Romans thirteen fourteen, we read there, we should make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Don't make any provision. Don't even step down a particular road or avenue that would lead to the flesh being able to fulfill the lust thereof. Verse 134, deliver me from the impression of man, so will I keep thy precepts. Well again, if my steps are to be ordered so that I don't walk into iniquity, my heart and mind need also to be delivered from the oppression that can overwhelm me before I even take a step. This is sometimes we, we, we kind of contemplate taking steps in our, our walk of faith, but we, we get overwhelmed by the pressures of life. But once again, as we said earlier, that oppression is very much about our relationship. If our relationship with God is right, deliver me from oppression. Don't even let me go there, Lord. Don't let me be in that place where I even feel oppressed. Because, again, remember, we've asked God to be surety for us, to speak well for us, to stand up and represent us, for God to say he's on our side. And so he says, Lord, deliver me from oppression. Don't even let it have its way with me or ever go at me at all. So I will keep thy precepts. You know, if the, the oppression that is caused by man and the oppression that is common to man, if those things can get to us, then we fall. Often it's external oppression that will lead to resilience. Sometimes that can be a good thing. But it's when it comes from within us. That's when the devil works most subtly. That's when he builds up those strongholds against the knowledge of God. And they can become real obstacles. So once again, we need to pray, God deliver us. Don't even let us go there. So just to, to conclude the last few verses. Lord, make thy face to shine upon thy servant. Teach me thy statutes. Once again, teach me thy statutes. But make my face. I mean, this is that prayer, the, the, the ironic blessing, isn't it? The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Lord, make thy face to shine upon me. Spurgeon said this, If the Lord will be exceedingly gracious and make him his favourite, he will ask no higher blessing than still to be taught the royal statutes. See how he craves after holiness. This is the choicest of all gems in his esteem. As we say among men that a good education is a great fortune, so to be taught of the Lord is a gift of special grace. Whatever the Lord would do for us, the greatest pleasure, the greatest joy is still to learn more of him. the, The horror of hell is that God's face will be turned away for all eternity. The joy of heaven is that we'll behold his face forevermore. And so finally, for this morning, verse 136, rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. And do you see how the psalmist is becoming more and more focused upon God? And as he does so, the things of this world hurt more and more. As he looks at the way the world is, he looks at the iniquity and so on. There's, there's, there's a greater intensity now to his emotion regarding the way the world is. You know, and 
I was just writing notes last night as I was getting ready for this, and I just, I felt like weeping because I don't yet weep like this. I mean, this psalmist is saying that he was crying because he looks around and sees people that don't keep God's law, and that hurts him. And I just thought, why aren't I there yet? But by God's grace, we keep growing. I want to get to that place where it hurts me as much as it hurt this psalmist when I see people that don't keep God's law. Ultimately, we want to come to that place where we have the same verdict on sin as God has. The world doesn't understand sin. The world gets confused by books like Leviticus. I mean, you read Leviticus and you get to see what God thinks about sin when you see how much blood is shed. That is the cost. That is the abhorrent nature of sin. It's not trivial in any regard. Sin is just an open, weeping sore. It's repugnant. It's repulsive. And as we grow closer to God, because of his word, well, naturally, we should come to this place where we might not be there this morning, but by God's grace, we'll come to that place one day that we will weep as we look at this world, as we look at the iniquity in this world. And we recognize, again, how many lives the king of below has taken. We were talking earlier of the king of Sodom and Melchizedek, the king of above, the king of below, the king of below, the king of the valley, wanted the souls of men. And how many has he taken so far? Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time. Impress these things upon our hearts. Lord, give us a hunger, a desire, and a thirsting for your word. Lord, we do want to pray that prayer, that you would be surety for us, that you would stand up and declare that we are yours. Oh Lord, what a privilege to know that if God is for us, and who can be against us? Jesus, to know that you have already declared that you are our advocate with the Father. That our sin is remembered no more. So Lord, we have no need to to fear what man can do to us. So Lord, keep us growing. Keep us learning of your word. Lord, if the entrance of your word gives light, we need light. So Lord, keep us reading and meditating in your word. And Father, please, as we grow closer to you, Lord, may we become more aware just of the horror of sin. Let it change the way we view this world. Let it change the way, Lord, that we look at those who are perishing. That, Lord, we have compassion on the lost, that we want to reach out and save them. Lord, we know we can't save. It's you who saves. But, Lord, we want to see them saved. And so, Father, we pray this morning you would add to this fellowship such as should be saved. We pray, Lord, the same for every godly, Bible-believing church where people will be taught the truth. You would add to their number. Jesus, we thank you because you are the King of righteousness. And again, Lord, we just pray that we would be transformed into your likeness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.